on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Joined by Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave. All right, in Chalk Talk, tenor Aaron Short joins the show as our guest, along with some hack called Tobias Wright. Anyway, we look at some of 2021's biggest sports stories and imagine their opera parallels, plus two-minute drill. What do Joni Mitchell, Bette Midler, and bass baritone Justino Diaz have in common? Well, you'll have to listen to the podcast version to find out. Luckily, if you're watching on Dallas Opera Network, you just subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, or you just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts, and you just use technology in ways that I don't really get. Weston Williams in the three spot, typically... Tonight, you're the top of the bill, young man. How are Look you? at me go. All I had to do was uh, uh, murder Oliver and stuff in the <laughs> closet. And I, I have so much power now. I'm on vacation, George. I'm in New Jersey. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm planning a meeting up with Snooki later. I hope you have a great week. <laughs> Ashley, also, we missed you as well in the recent I time. I did miss you as well. I was also on vacation, uh, also out east, but... Now I am back, and now I'm here, and it is even hotter here than it was where I was. So, hooray! Yeah, <laughs> uh, there was some there were some mic problems this week. That uh... mm. well, I don't, honey, I don't know if I would actually call them mic problems. I think it was an amazing hot mic moment. Uh, so on Tuesday of this week, uh, the Baltimore Orioles played a game, and the MLB coverage for the network was an all-female team, and it was the first time that it's happened, which is amazing. Uh, and there are some dugout mics that were there for the Orioles, and uh, Anthony Santander got caught on this hot mic saying, oh, this is great, uh, once he was told that there was an all-female team. This is great. Women should be making more of a place for themselves. They have to keep carving out spots for themselves in this industry. And then he said what was maybe my favorite part, which is they're already smarter than us anyway. So <laughs> let this episode of Opera Box Score be my official marriage proposal to Anthony Santander. I think I could be a really good baseball wife. Balls in your court or on your field. Well, sorry, let me get my metaphors right. Tobias Wright, look at this guy, back from the dead, one of the co-founders of Opera Box Score, dear, dear friend of mine. Toby, you look great. Background's a little blurry, but the rest of you's just fine. <laughs> that was intentional. I didn't want you to see the blank walls in my home office. Also, Weston mentioned something about putting Oliver back in the closet. And let's just be honest, that's <laughs> never going to happen. Um, yeah. And then to stay on the, the baseball trend, the United States Olympic softball team had a walk-off home run against Japan. This was hit by a young woman named Kelsey Stewart, who hails from our Kansas City, Kansas. Do you want to know who else hails from our Kansas City, Kansas? Me. So, <laughs> so the glow up from tiny little Ark City to Olympians winning in Japan and being, you know, disgruntled former radio hosts. It's it's pretty substantial. So thanks that for having is- me back, George. It's great to see everybody. Love this. Great to see you. Uh, Aaron, great to have you on the show as well. Another Kansas City Chiefs fan in the house. <laughs> there could never be too many. Did you steal that hat from Toby? No. At, no, your, this- at your weekly meeting of the uh, bearded tenors who love the Kansas City Chiefs Club? <laughs> oh, well. Patrick Mahomes Club. 
<laughs> uh, well, we do all love Patrick Mahomes. It's very, very true. No, Same. I've had this one for a while. It's it's my it's one of my favorites. I wear it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Typically, we jump right into the chalk talk. Uh, I want to take a few minutes, Aaron, to have our listeners get to know you. So, uh, not so recent uh, relocation to Chicago, but you came from Portland, and what were you doing there? Uh, well, I was doing a young artist program uh, in Portland from 2016, uh, in 2016 and 2017. Um, it was right when they shifted to a brand new summer festival season. Um, and so there was a lot of big changes happening, but it, uh, it, I really enjoyed my time there. It's a wonderful, amazing city, um, and I, I would love to go back someday for sure. Fantastic. Portland, of course, going to come back at the end of the show in the two-minute drill. Aaron, you are now in the doctoral program at Northwestern. Last year was your first year. All but that was weird. It was extremely weird. It, uh, it was, you know, not a lot going on um, outside of Zoom. I got to know um, maybe a handful of people super well, but not, not the rest of it. I was really missing that that um, feeling of being in a music school and being in a music building um, over Zoom. But I got straight A's in my classes, so I can't be upset about that. Honor roll. More. That's right. I'm on the honor roll, baby. So I'm going to take you to Dairy Queen for a treat. That's right. Uh, and next year, we're opening back up um, for everybody. So I'm excited to actually be in the school and get to know everybody and, and really be a part of the program. Um, can't wait. Fantastic, man. Well, great to have you on the show. And of course, great, Toby, to see you again as well. Let us talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. The whole point of Opera Box Score when we first conceptualized it back six seasons ago already was to draw these parallels between sports and opera. And when you break it down and when you get granular, it is a very fine web. The fanaticism of the people that love both these art forms, the athleticism of the people that create both these art forms. On the show this week, we take a look at five sports stories from 2001 that allow us to draw parallels between sports and opera. I'm going to kick it off. This is one of Oliver's stories that uh, was is well known now in sports, but that he really brought to the table a couple weeks ago. Uh, Naomi Osaka, tennis player, who had really taken the media to task about their aggressiveness about how post-game they are in your face. Of course, this is not specific to tennis. This happens in all of the major and minor league sports as well. It got me to thinking, if you're Christine Gerke and you come off stage, and hey, look, we all have bad nights, right? A lot of us have bad days. I don't think Christina Gerke has bad nights, Yeah, George. No, I, she, she, she really doesn't. She, she, don't. she, she needs to get that more, slander off of here. I think, I think, I think, I think she... Hey, it happens to the best of us. She comes off stage. Someone shoves a mic in her face. Is like, hey, look. Um, so you know this. This is a role that you have struggled with in the past. Tonight has probably not been one of your best performances. What is your plan to make amends for that? And how do you really see the rest of your <laughs> assignments uh, in this season panning out? Like, you know what I think she would do? I think she would post that picture of herself that she did on Twitter a couple of weeks ago where she was peering over the glasses. I think she would just do that to the reporter. They shouldn't ask the question. It's still garbage. But she would just peer over those glasses to the middle of their soul. And they would, like Lot's wife, just pillar assault, just crumble right there. The opposite, of course, is is the Met and HD broadcasts where 
folks come off the stage and like a mic does get shoved into their face and it's these softball questions of like well how did you create the role of violetta and then it's completely (laughs) nonsense answers that have no meaning or value whatsoever like should we spicy hot takes from george today should we be scrutinizing our performing artists more should we just be leaving them alone like how do we how do we show the work behind the scenes I think it's fair to ask questions about performance. Um, and in opera, because the scope isn't as intense um, as they are in sports, it really doesn't. And like the Met and HD broadcasts, right? They, they, those are softball questions. It's geared toward making everybody have a great time with production. But I think it'd be really fair to, to have, you know, imagine Polizzani walking off stage and somebody gets to say, it sounded difficult there. Talk to us about the challenges. What were you thinking? What's going through you through through your technique there? How are you navigating that in this moment on this random February night in downtown Chicago when it's 20 degrees? I think that'd be phenomenal to hear. And I think it would draw people in because it, it pulls back the curtain without this it's it scrutiny without negative connotation, I feel like. I do think there are like even with those softball questions, you do have opportunities for surprises. I remember um when the Met did uh, the the William Kentridge production of Lulu, for example, there was, uh, uh, I believe, uh, was it Marlis Peterson who was doing uh, Lulu? Um, Sounds right. I, I think that was right. I'll look it up in a second. Um, but uh, they they were doing like the usual, you know, Met thing of being like, here's what this is. We we know it's atonal. Don't panic. It's fine. Lulu is a femme fatale. And there's just this moment where uh, Peterson just like zeroed in on Peter Galvin. It's like, no, she's not. She's 16 years old. It is much more complicated than that. This is something that needs to be appreciated on a deeper level. And it's really interesting if you watch like the earlier interviews from that show where they're really selling the, you know, this is basically just Carmen, but sounds scarier uh, all the way to like, you know, this is a really deep moving work of art. And that transition in those uh, changing how the audience saw it, I think was something that was really, really valuable and something you don't really see a lot in opera. And maybe that's a cue we can take from sports. Um, although I don't know how much uh, those sports interviews actually help the athletes. <laughs> you do find those athletes kind of saying the same thing over mm-hmm. and over again. Toby, uh, hashtag you love the Chiefs. We know that. <laughs> Talk to us about the Super Bowl and the operaticness of that and this team yeah so i you know lifelong kansas city chiefs fan i loved the chiefs far before i ever knew that opera even existed um so i mean i i think actually this is an interesting one so the chiefs um won the super bowl in january of 2020 um and that was this young new superstar, uh, Patrick Mahomes. And then last year, the Super Bowl was the defending champion, Kansas City Chiefs, with their savant, Patrick Mahomes, the great legendary coach, Andy Reid, and then the newly uh, formidable Tampa Bay Buccaneers with the greatest of all time quarterback, Tom Brady. So the Chiefs, <laughs> they ran through their schedule, uh, hardly a hiccup. They went, I think they went 14 and 2 in the regular season, breeze to the Super Bowl. Um, and it looked like they were going to you know, firmly put a flag atop the summit of the NFL as this new dynasty. COVID, uh, injuries, and then a perfect storm of game plan strength and game plan weaknesses matching up against, uh, you know, a great defense with Tampa Bay um, led to a blowout loss. And it caused the Chiefs 
to really have to reassess what they've done as an organization and look inward and reevaluate um, everything that they've designed the team as. And I think what this kind of parallels as is what COVID did to opera companies around the world. You know, companies who have had tons of momentum with their programming, uh, mm-hmm. with young artists uh, launching massive careers from their platform. Um, I think specifically of companies like Chicago Fringe Opera, who had started to really gain traction within the community. And then something like COVID happens, where it's this perfect storm of, we can't do it. Um, we literally are not allowed into spaces. Donations stop because the economy basically comes to a halt to the point where the government is subsidizing not just organizations, but people. Um, right. And I think that the parallel there is that, so a lot of opera companies had to stop in their tracks and really look inward and and reevaluate. The bad part about that is that the stop took place. Was that COVID happened? We can't change that. The Chiefs can't change the fact that they totally got their ass handed to them in the Super Bowl, as embarrassing as that is. And that is not a curse word. Dallas Opera Network, fight me on it. Um, (laughs) And so, but, but what I, at the same time, what I think does come from this is the Chiefs, for instance, have, five new starting offensive linemen. No one who started that Super Bowl and gave up nine sacks is still there. Guess what? They had to reevaluate. I do think that from this time period in opera, we reached audiences that didn't have access before. And I'm not saying that we didn't want to reach. I'm saying they didn't have access through things Mm. like Zoom, through performance uh, mediums, like putting things out on the internet. So I think there will be good. It's going to take time to understand that. But I do think that ultimately... Be, you know, opera has always been a a, a, a a profession that seems to change at a glacial pace. And I think this forced a lot of organizations to pivot, pivot fast. Um, and I do think that a lot of, you know, artistic excellence and creativity will be born from this moment. And I don't know that we'll know the scope of it for a while to come. Mm. And to that end, I do think the Chiefs will win the Super Bowl next year. <laughs> Uh, I was waiting for it. I'm marking (laughs) off my bingo card. There is, there is one thing I wanted to to interject in there. You know, that's absolutely true that there, there seem to be very few hiccups with the Chiefs getting into the Super Bowl this last season. However, I do think there was a a huge amount of luck, and 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 for some time, for some moments, I felt like they were hanging on by a thread. Specifically, wasn't it this last season that um, Mahomes took a hit to his knee and Mm -hmm. it was dislocated? And it, we were just—it was incredibly lucky that it wasn't—he didn't, you know, rip some, rip an ACL, rip anything down there. He was able to pop it back in, and they were able to, you know, he was back within a week or two. Uh, I can think of, you know, several ways that there are opera companies that are um, were hanging on by a thread prior to the pandemic, and then without when this hit, um, if they didn't pivot, I mean, they were gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, there are there are some companies that are doing it better than others that we can argue about that. Um, but I do think that the Chiefs were incredibly lucky to even make it as far as they did last year. And it, it's lucky, and I think it's it's determination. Um, but I, I do also agree with you. I, I I'm as a Chiefs fan, they're going to win next year, no doubt. Hundred <laughs> percent. And luck is a part of it. Luck yeah. is a yeah. part of a career. Luck is a part of you know yeah. Jonas Kaufman's career. Right person, right time discovers him. Here's, you know what? You're going to be something different than what people are casting as. It's luck. And so I definitely. Well, certainly think- the opera world is not based on merit. I think we can all agree. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Now that yeah. I'm out of it, I can definitely say that. Yeah, <laughs> <let's> not- <laughs> agree. Ashley Hardgrave, you're going to stick with the NFL as well for your parallel and actually related to the pandemic. 
sure am. Uh, we're going to keep going on this NFL tip, and we're going to talk about the vaccination requirements that the league came out with uh, last week. So I think it was on Thursday, uh, Commissioner Roger Goodell sent a memo to all 32 teams in the NFL, and it detailed these very drastic penalties for unvaccinated personnel. So the NFL as a league is going full steam ahead with their schedule. They're only going to postpone games if they absolutely have to under a government or a medical order. Uh, and so what this edict uh, from Goodell says is if an unvaccinated player or a staff member is shown to have caused an outbreak, uh, the team responsible is going to be financially responsible for the other club's expenses. Hmm. If the game cannot be rescheduled, the responsible team forfeits that game and for things like playoff contingency purposes they're credited as a loss while the other team is credited as a win responsible teams and coaches might not even get paid for these games now there is going to be an exception of course if it's you know we're all now familiar with the concept of the breakthrough infection you're vaccinated you get COVID anyway or you show a positive test for COVID for something like that the NFL is going to work to minimize the penalties they they acknowledged it but they didn't really talk it through very much because that's not that's not who this messaging is for. Uh, I think we all know that. Um, so at last check, 80% of all players in the NFL have had at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. There isn't the same statistic on coaching staffs or front offices or people that work in the stadiums. But again, I think the focus for this is really going to be on the players more than anything else. Um, and big surprise, some folks in the NFL are already whining about this <laughs> whole thing. Uh, Rick Dennison got fired from the Vikings last week uh, on their coaching staff. Cole Popovich has already left New England Patriots, New England, New England, excuse me, Patriots. Uh, and then you got a couple of players that are whining on Twitter. Cole Beasley, DeAndre Hopkins, Leonard Fournette are all just belly aching and worrying and wondering about what their future should be in the NFL. Oh no, another offensive lineman leaves. Oh, here are 17 more. Can you tell how I feel about this? Uh, so this is my question. Yeah, coach. <laughs> this is my question. What if, what if we did some similar edict requirement for the A-level houses of the opera world. What hmm. if, what if we required proof of vaccination or a medical or religious exemption, because we know those exist, in order to sign a contract with an A-house? Everybody from the front of house staff to the artist to the technical staff. And then if going with this metaphor here, if an unvaccinated artist or a staff member is found to have caused an infection during that contracted period and any rehearsal or performance has to change and they're considered to be the cause or what literally brought it into the house, they're immediately released from their contract if it's not a breakthrough vaccination or a, a breakthrough thing, and they're fiscally responsible for some of the loss of revenue stream, whether it's sales. <laughs> Maybe possibly more importantly, <laughs> staff or house costs or the cost to bring the cover up to speed to literally cover for your ass because you're the one that brought this into the house. Stay with me. This is my thought is <laughs> we have seen over the course of this year, over the course of the last 18 months at this point, countless productions and rehearsal processes get these red cards and shut down this year. And not just because of, you know, Australia's COVID guidelines. Sometimes these infections were literally brought in by some, you know, knucklehead that just wasn't paying attention. Each one of those shutdowns has box office staff. They have costumers, they have set runners, they have prompters who are counting on that money to survive in what's already a volatile economy, no matter where you are in the globe in the last year and a half. If you brought that in, why shouldn't 
insert name of singer here. We'll go with Netrebko. Be on the hook for buffoonishly. randomly. Completely randomly. I we've never I've never spoken on her about this podcast before. But why shouldn't somebody like Anitrebko be on the hook for buffoonishly bringing in the virus to that single mom usher who now, because there's no show, can't feed her kids? Okay, this is my free career advice to revamp the career of Peter Gelb. You would be an American hero <laughs> if you installed a vaccine edict like this for 2021 and 2022. People would be like, people would forget so many of the pretty crummy things that you've done over the last year if you would do something like this and save the world of opera. Opera as we've known it for years. This is a team sport. We know this. Everybody's got to do their part. And I don't know, give a damn about their fellow humans. Uh, It's time we grew up and we acted like it. Quick little soapbox, little monologue, and then I promise I'm done. Inoculations are not political. I repeat, inoculations whoa, are whoa, not Whoa, 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 Yes, they are. Ah, here we go. Um, inoculations, they're not political. Public health is not political. My mother has an indentation in her arm, and magically, I also have never had to worry about catching smallpox. Why is that? Because science works. I have to get vaccinated so that I can go back to my job, just like I had to get shots to go to public school, to go to my university, to go to college. I also am willing to get these inoculations. Why? Because I'm not an a-hole. See, Dallas, I censored myself. I want to live. And ultimately, I want other people to also live as well. I don't know how to convince the others in the opera world that aren't taking this seriously. I can't convince them to care about other people. But maybe, just maybe, if they knew they had to pay, if they didn't care, they might get on board. Well, I mean, money talks, right? The, The Met has, as I understand it, required all of its singers, artists, employees to be vaccinated. But you're really upping the level here, Ashley. When you start to put money into the equation, man, people pay attention really, really quickly. I mean, that's what the NFL is doing, though, George. I mean, you don't get a mess with a $20 billion business. Like mm-hmm. They're not messing around. The Mets shouldn't mess around either. I mean, that much is at stake. But by the way, Ashley, it is political. It's my body, my choice. <laughs> And this is why we kicked you off the show in the first place, Toby. That's why you got fired, Toby. But no, I mean, seriously. I'm just kidding. I love saying stupid stuff. You know what? I love it, and we love you for it. a lot of tension here. (laughs) That's what makes for good radio, Aaron Team Ted Lasso Short. This is what we do. This is what we do. I do. I just feel like that's part I think your point, Toby, about, you know, you're not messing with $20 million contracts. Let's think about this. It's like, in the NFL, it's not just about, like, the player salaries. Let's talk about the end goal of what all of these things are, which is the playoffs. The Super Bowl is big bucks. Any team that even makes it to the first round of the playoffs is already generating way more revenue than they would in the regular season. So the fact that this forfeiture of games is going to count towards playoff contention and losses and wins, like that's a big deal. It's not just about not getting paid for the one game you might miss because you were a buffoon. It's about all of the revenue that you might be losing because you're helping keep your team out of playoff contention. And of course, all of the people that work in the stadiums and sell snacks and all of those folks as well. But like, I imagine somebody who's got a $20 million contract is focusing more on their paycheck than someone else's, but we'll see. Contract's a big part of your take, Aaron. We're looking at the unions of, say, the Met, and, of course, Major League Baseball's unions are up for uh, bargaining shortly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, Sticking with the Peter Gelb uh, you know, 
uh, theme here. Uh, so <laughs> the alternative title to Opera Box Score is "Let's Bash Peter Gelb." I gave some advice. Hey, well, I mean, I, I think there's absolutely room for him to get some advice. Let me tell you. So, <laughs> uh, as as you may know, uh, the NF, uh, sorry, the M, uh, MLB is going to be having their CBA uh, agreement expiring here in December first, and yep. we we know all about the CBA agreements from all over different sports, and it's always a, a struggle. And I think there's a lot of uh, interesting things that are going to be on the table coming up. Um, there was a lot of new experiments that are happening, even just this this season with like uh, the extra runner at second base. On, on for the uh, extra innings, um, the, the idea of putting the DH in uh, in the National League. There's so many things that are on the table. Robo umps, maybe. Who knows? I have no idea. Um, it's gonna. There's gonna be so much negotiating negotiation happening, um, and it's it's interesting because there are the the Met has a bunch of unions that they're trying to satisfy and negotiate with right now. Uh, and being from Chicago, we just had our own big slew of, of negotiations with um, the Lyric Opera and with the CSO. And they, they, they there were some disruptions last year. Uh, so, or I should say before the pandemic. It feels like last year because last year to me didn't happen. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all like a time. Absolutely. It's a time, time is a flat circle. Well, anyway, the Met. Uh, they're going to be negotiating right now. They're having a, a really, really long negotiation with the orchestra. But the real problem that I'm seeing is uh, they're they're going to have a struggle getting the stagehands to come with them because uh, mm-hmm. the stagehands are are really angry with Peter Gelb and some of the choices they've made, um, especially over the pandemic over the last year. Uh, specifically, they outsourced uh, a bunch of the set building to to California and to Wales to these different places that uh, and and just completely left the the stagehands in the dust. And, and in a sense, they did the same thing to the chorus uh, when the, all the productions got canceled. Canceled. They didn't give any sort of honorariums, no anything to them. They just kind of said, "Hey, we're sorry, no more work. We can't give you any extra help." And, and it just they, there's so much distrust. I feel like within mm. um, the unions and, and the Met um, that I just it's going to be a, a tough road for them. Uh, and I I'm really curious to see how it's going to shake out. If they're going to get anything, if they're going to get everything done by September for the start of their season, or if it's going to be a rocky road, um, because I could see that happening in MLB for sure. And there's a little bit more trust there, although probably not. Um, and I, it's just, I have no idea what's going to happen. It's going to be crazy. Uh, <laughs> that's, it's, there's no other way to put it, man. It is, it is crazy. And it, it always yeah. ends in tears somehow. Every time, even even when and they come through with a a deal, I feel like the, there's been such a trend in the last few years, uh, and at least in classical music, and um, of of just like the management putting up like I mean, they management always puts up walls in these negotiations, but we've seen them escalate to a level of nastiness we haven't seen, you know, in, in a long time, you know, in, in Baltimore, you know, that's part of the reason Maren Alsop is leaving, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, then just, just like the, the level of sheer, uh, uh, being at odds and, and, you know, and the Mets kind of proving that, you know, during the pandemic, it was actually doing just fine with donations, um, despite, you know, not paying anyone, anything it's it's one of those things where we're going to see as things get back to normal knock on wood uh there's going to be a lot of eyes on the next big union negotiations because those are going to be very very consequential to what happens as we go back to whatever normal is uh post pandemic and look if a lockout is what needs to happen at the met like remember the mlb lockouts and the nhl lockouts People sit up and listen. Wow, do they ever. Because we, we are addicted 
to our baseball and our football and our hockey just the same way that we're addicted to our opera. And people will sit up and they will pay attention. The takes will be flying, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly on this show from Ashley specifically. (laughs) Weston, uh, of course, it looks like you're still patting yourself on the back that we correctly predicted... Oh, absolutely, we did. The final of the European 2020 (laughs) uh, soccer championships based on opera prowess. I mean, uh, the conceit of this show really holds up because we really nailed it. We knew Italy was going to win opera. We knew Italy was going to win the soccer. Uh, (laughs) I I just want to kind of bring it all around a little bit because I think the big theme we're all talking about here is that Opera and sports are not these separate things from what's happening in the world, because, you know, the people who do opera, the people who do sports, it's easy, uh, you know, coming from like a spectator's perspective to see these people as like superhuman or like, you know, completely disconnected from uh, whatever problems are going on. But I think what COVID and the reckoning around, uh, you know, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter uh, over the past year have really proved that there is no aspect of culture, including sports, including opera, that is, you know, separate. And, and it never was. Um, I, I think that uh, a really good analogy uh, as far as, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement goes is, you know, the, the um, you know, the whole controversy about, you know, blackface and yellowface in opera. There's no good argument for it. There just isn't. But people will just hang on to it just because that's how we did it. That's how we always did it. And you look at, um, you know, all these uh, team names um, that are insensitive, the Redskins, the uh, uh, the Cleveland Indians, which just just changed this past week um, to the Guardians, which amazing. Uh, in my book, they're pulling a Tamara Wilson and uh, taking a stand against blackening her skin in uh, Aida. Um, uh, I believe we had her on the show. What was, what was that like? Uh, again, Pre-pandemic, could have been 50 years ago, could have been a year ago. I don't remember anymore. Now um, it's 50th year. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe in sports, the, the whole political conversation, the uh, ongoing debates over, over vaccinations and what to do, and really starting to reckoning, reckon with these racist histories are something that is a microcosm of culture as a whole. Um, this is what we have to remember as we're going forward you can tell a lot about people and the times they're living in by looking at their arts and looking at their sports. And once we make the arts and the sports gel with what we want our society to actually be, um, you know, more egalitarian, more safe, more, uh, you know, equal, that is, that is, that is the bellwether that'll say, maybe we've finally done it. Maybe we've finally solved some of these age old problems. And I think we're finally seeing some steps both in sports and in opera, despite resistance to go towards that better world in the future. And, you know, as bad as the pandemic has been, it has given me hope in a lot of areas that by and large, we're kind of slowly working towards progress <laughs> to wrap up the wrap up for me whether it's on the obs or whether i'm just thinking about my love of sports and operas it has always come down to one thing there's one thing present in theater and there's one thing present in sports and this, the notion of heroism 
that all we go to the theater for is to see heroism and that all we really watch sports for is heroism. The difference, of course, is that even in theater and opera is that an ending has been written. And I would argue that sports is now the last place in our culture where we truly do not know what is going to happen. And that is what keeps us going till the bitter, bitter end. Let us know what you think and let us know your hot take. You can email us operaboxscore at gmail.com. Before we get into the two-minute drill, we usually do a little more sports talk with such a sports-heavy show this week. We should <laughs> probably do some opera talk, but uh, no, we're just going to talk some more sports. <laughs> Ashley, He can't be are, stopped, folks. He's a madman. You are overwhelmed by the Olympics and a I, specific athlete. I am overwhelmed by a lot of things. I know that in, you know, in the lead ups to this period of time, Matt Cummings has kind of been our unofficial Olympics watch person, but I am a deep, deep, deep Olympic stand to be fair. Love the winter a little more than the summer, but the summer is here. We've waited a long time for it. It's very exciting. Uh, did I cry during the opening ceremonies? Of course I did. That was, uh, a, did really, I... That was a really cold take. It... <laughs> The other um, reason we got rid of him from the show because it, it was about winter. Okay, cool. proud of you. Yeah, proud yeah, of you. yeah, yeah. But the, one of the things I got really emotional about uh, on Sunday was watching Oksana Chusovicina. She just competed in her eighth Olympics. Yes, I said eighth. She is. 46 years old and she competed as a gymnast she's been in every olympics since 1992 for most of her career she has been consistently in the top eight vaulters in the world once again in an opera sports parallel good technique is going to take you far don't let anybody tell you that you're too old or it's too late for you to be a part of the big leagues because oksana chusevatina is that she is the story about endurance and perseverance and staying at the top of your game for as long as you possibly can. And for so many people to tell her she's too old, lay down, sit down. Now, unfortunately, she did not qualify for the vault finals, which is devastating. But the fact that she was able to even get there, considering how bananas the standards are and how different they are from when she first started competing into, I'll say it again, 1992. So the hero of all my weeks for the month of July is going to be Oksana Shuzovtina of Uzbekistan, Team Uzbek for Life. Pop quiz, the 92 Olympics were in what? Season? Barcelona. Barcelona. That was going to be harder for you to guess. <laughs> Amateur the drill is right now. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. A recent article in the New York Times discusses the pervasiveness of anti-Asian racism in classical music. Interviews with over 40 professionals revealed persistent discrimination towards performers, teachers, students, and arts administrators. Said Miran Kim, a violinist of South Korean descent, we're not included in leadership positions and we're not part of the conversation. Cast us, include us, Pursue us and consult us. Those are the four things the Asian Opera Alliance are calling for to combat institutional racism, tokenization, and the dearth of Asian representation within the opera industry. The call for change comes from friends of the show, Andrew Stenson, Huang Ro, Justin Werner, and 28 other industry professionals who make up the Alliance. A link to that video on the OBS Facebook page. 
Oksana Lenev is set to be the first woman to conduct at Bayreuth in the festival's 145-year history. Better late than... No, actually, it's pretty late. Uh, the Ukrainian conductor will be opening the season with Der Fliegende Hollander. The Kennedy Center will honor bass baritone Husino Diaz this December, alongside such luminaries as Joni Mitchell, Bette Midler, and Lorne Michaels. Born in Puerto Rico, Diaz made his Metropolitan Opera debut in 1963 in Verdi's Rigoletto, the first of 400 performances that spanned 21 seasons. Said Diaz, quote, I have never written anything like Joni or thought up things like Lorne Michaels. We get to recreate works of Bach, Verdi, Beethoven, Puccini. It's a big thrill. I have no idea what those four people are going to talk about over the shrimp cocktail. <laughs> In trade news, friend of the show, Pretty Gandhi, has left her position at Minnesota Opera to become Portland Opera's new artistic director. Quote, Portland Opera has a history of great artistic vision, presenting grand traditional works, as well as those that push the boundaries of tradition, says Gandhi. My first priority will be to listen in order to gain insight and further develop our work from a foundation of inclusion, respect, and joy. Exit stage right, Gil Wexler, the Metropolitan Opera's first resident lighting designer, has died at the age of 79. Wexler lit over 100 productions at the Met, as well as theater and ballet productions across the U.S. and Canada. American soprano Sarah Payne has died. Payne was a frequent uh, finalist, excuse me, on the competitive circuit. She won first place in the 2015 St. Petersburg Opera Guild voice competition. She then went on to perform at such houses as Florida Grand Opera, Miami Music Festival, Utopia Opera, and FIU Opera Theater. And on this day, July 26th, no less than four operas by Italian composer Giovanni Bononcini premiered in Vienna from 1701 to 1710. German composer Reinhard Kaiser comes in second place with two operas premiering in Hamburg on this day in 1709 and 1710. Where's Oliver when you needed him? Joseph Haydn's La fin uh, L'Anfeldelta de Luza had its first performance in 1773 in Esterhazy. Jumping ahead to the 19th century, in 1852, Michael Balfi's The Devil's In It debuted in London. In 1866, it was the birth of Italian composer Francesco Cilea. In 1882, another premiere, a little opera called Parsifal by a composer named, I, I think it's Richard Wagner, uh, premiered at Bayreuth. Nothing of note happened this day in the 20th century, but in 2003, it was the first performance of Bright Shang's Madame Mao at Santa Fe Opera. And that is your two-minute drill. We just heard a little bit of bass baritone Justino Diaz singing Iago's Credo from the <laughs> Zeffirelli film that also stars Katia Riccarelli and some tenor as Otello. <laughs> he really is, uh, in this in this one, uh, I'm reading the notes that Oliver put for me for this one because I haven't actually seen it. Um, but uh, from Barry Hunks, um, they say that Justino Diaz almost stole the opera film Otello um, with his searingly evil portrayal of Iago, complete with his trademark rich and resonant low tones. And if you listen to the clip, if you're listening on the podcast version, it's it really is a glorious voice and he is, is a well-deserved 
award to receive alongside Joni Mitchell and Lauren Michaels. <laughs> Again, you can listen to the podcast on Stitcher. You just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Who knew July 26 was so dark in Opperland for a hundred years or more? <laughs> More importantly, Reinhard Kaiser slumming it with only two operas premiering. Come on, Kaiser. We expected more from you. Let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Ashley, the Asian Opera Alliance, we got their back. Oh, we got their back so hard in the same way that we've got it for BOA. I, you know, none of this is surprising. You know, minorities aren't represented in opera film at 11. Like we knew this, but we're frustrated because this has not this is not okay. It has never been okay. What we're finally talking about how just un-okay it is. Uh, but yes, Asian Opera Alliance, we're here for you. If you've got anybody that you want to come on, get some messages, we're here to be a megaphone. So we got you back. Aaron Short, over to you. So Pretty Gandhi leaves Minnesota over to Portland. What's the attraction, do you think, for a move like that? To Other than all the that? local breweries and uh, hipster cafes and stuff and like birds. that. Birds That's not day. saying Minnesota doesn't have that, too. <laughs> Minnesota is a lot more cold than Portland, I can tell you that right True. now. Especially after the recent heat waves. Woo. Um, but, you know, I, I could really see her being attracted to how uh, diverse and, and uh, really on, on the forefront of change that Portland um, likes to be. Especially the city itself is certainly known for it. But the opera company has also really started to try to get, get their toes in that as well. Um, I know when I first, like I said, when I first started there, they had switched from doing the, the normal full-length season to doing the summer um, um, festival season, which was a big, big change. Um, and I think since I've left, after I finished my two years there, uh, they've really started to incorporate a lot more um, diverse uh, composers uh, that they've been featuring in their operas. And if, in fact, I think this last year they featured two operas um, from BIPOC composers. Mm-hmm. And they are continuing to stay at the front um, of changing and, and really kind of listening, as she said, listening to the, to the, uh, to the, the people's voices, uh, especially in, in this time when there's a lot of change happening within the industry. Um, and it's, it's exciting change. And I think that she is going to be a great fit for that company um, as they really try to be one of the ones that, that gets out there and, and, and is, is the one leading the charge. Well, it's certainly sure. the ground rule when you go to a new institution, especially an opera, is that the first thing you change is absolutely nothing. And you just <laughs> let it play out Listen. over... I mean, it can take seasons, right, for artistic directors to finally sort of yeah. get up, get pitch of the hall and start to kind of know where to program. On paper, this move I, makes me scratch my head, right? Pretty Gandhi, well-known international singer. Uh, chief Friend of the show. Opera in Minnesota. Friend of the show. Friend of the show, going to Portland. I get, I get the – it's not a sideways move. Like, she is artistic director. Uh, I get the change in market – I, I think it just kind of remains to be seen, like, you know, what she's going to do with that. And, and we may not know for a while. That's that's for sure. Uh, but I do think that she's got a great uh, cast and crew uh, of, of administrative people around her that will be able to guide her and help her um, with making good, really good decisions uh, for the company and for the city. Um, so we'll just see what happens. Uh, Ashley, back to the Kennedy Center and that truly unique list of... <laughs> Luminaries and dignitaries, if I can call them that. Lauren Michaels, certainly uh, luminescent, but 
uh, otherwise known as my dream dinner party. Are you kidding? This is an amazing ensemble of people. Well, you uh, wouldn't one be able person- to get a word in edgeways. Worth it. Worth it. I would just hit record on my phone, leave it in my purse and set it on the table and just let it happen. Um, okay. So one of the people we didn't mention, I, I love that. I love that the Kennedy Center honors are are, first of all, that they're still a thing and that they weren't destroyed with the previous administration. Um, and there will be an American president of these, which is going to be fascinating to watch. Um, so let's talk about this list. So we mentioned Joni Mitchell. We mentioned Lauren Michaels. Of course, we mentioned Justino Diaz. We mentioned Bette Midler. Also, Barry Gordy. He's number five. So it's a very music heavy list. It's a very awesome list. It, it, there are some interesting choices on this list, but it's also kind of like, in some ways, the Kennedy Center honor is both a contrib- you know, a mark of your contribution to the American cultural landscape, but it's also kind of like a lifetime achievement award. Mm. I want us though, to think about what's going to happen during the broadcast that we know is filmed and televised. It's usually televised on CBS. Um, What this broadcast does for the classical versions of the arts is a big deal. Uh, So there are going to be a lot of people in their homes on a Sunday night when we're usually watching television that are going to maybe tune in for a Barry Gordy or a Joni Mitchell. All those Lorne Michaels stands out there just uh, clicking in. Uh, Again, this is me. I am the Lorne Michaels stand. Um, He's a tiny man in real life. I went to a taping of SNL. He's not a tall man. He's very weak. Um, But the point is, is that there's going to be eyeballs in households across America that are going to get a chance to see clips of Metropolitan Opera performances. I'll be very interested to see who they bring as, because the the honorees themselves do not perform, but they bring in people to perform like highlights of these folks' careers. So it'll be really interesting to Mm -hmm. see which opera singers they bring on stage the Kennedy Center for this. So it is a an interesting motley crew of folks, but again, the the cultural contributions, both of these folks, and then the amount of access that we're going to be given to folks that wouldn't usually see classical music, that I'm very excited about that. Could we see some other really interesting thing like what happened when um, Pavarotti was not feeling well, uh, and then they brought on uh, who else but... Um, oh my gosh, the name is escaping me, but it's a very famous moment. She came in and sang Nason Dorma. Please Arita help Franklin. me. There it is. Yes. Maybe we'll see something like that. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. She I love that, that final line. Oh, mama. She ripped it. She ripped mama. it. Mama. It's great. Weston Gill Wexler has died, a resident lighting designer at the Met. That is an unsung hero. Absolutely. And that, that's why I wanted to bring a little bit more attention to it. And, and the New York Times did too. So the, they did the legwork leg for me. But um, I, I feel like uh, th- there's something about all of these technical aspects to theater that um, I, I was always told, um, my, I, my background sort of is in sound design mostly. Um, and I was always told that, you know, a good sound design is something that no one comments on, you know, something that no one notices. And uh, it's the same thing for lighting in many ways, but uh, the difficulty of what he was doing is, and the thanklessness of it. And also the Met, the, the, he was the first residential lighting designer at the Met, which just goes to show how low he was in terms of their priorities. They're like, you know, we're the largest arts organization in the US. Maybe we should have a resident lighting designer, I guess, you know? Um, but the things they had, he had to do, because, you know, you have t- tons of shows that you have to light. Um, you're working with uh, equipment from, you know, many years ago it's not all up to date you have to make sure that um 
uh, uh, that aging sets look good. That's a big one because the Mets known for all those like, you know, Mothrid and Zeffirelli productions. And if you shine a wrong light on that, it looks bad, you know, and um, you have to also keep up to date with the changing technology in terms of lighting. There's no other field that has been more drastically changed over the last several decades with digitization and, um, and, you know, lighting equipment, it's a whole different field. And to be able to adapt to that, to make make something from 1970 look just as good as something that was that premiered yesterday um, is truly a challenge. And the next time any of you are at a theater or an opera, when we're all able to, uh, just like take a moment to appreciate the technical aspects, the people working backstage that without which you'll be getting a half prepared, half baked product. And it's um, it, I, I just really wanted to highlight him. And he really was an unsung hero of the Metropolitan Opera. The lighting is so difficult because unlike scenic and costume elements, like you can't touch it. You can see mm-hmm. sound. You can't even touch, of course. And luckily in opera land, sound design is, is not really so much of a thing. But lighting design to talk about light, the way it hits surfaces, how to create that and to do that with very, very little time is extremely mm-hmm. difficult and requires some real true pros to pull that off. Mostly because like singers never really complain about the lighting versus the costumes. Ashley Bayreuth, a changing of the garden. Yay. It only took you <laughs> almost 150 years to hire a woman. Model. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's the most reactionary thing Bayreuth will be they known hired, for. They hired, they hired Jews and Americans before they hired women. Woof. Um, yeah, no, I mean, here's the thing. I don't know a ton about Oksana Lviv, but here's the deal. She's Ukrainian, which usually when you see female conductors, they come from, you know, a little more slightly larger European countries because those tend to be the places that have big hubs, big training centers and the like. But her resume is like Odessa National Opera. She was the first woman uh, for uh, Graz actually as well. So this is her second time being the first woman to do something. Albeit this one's a little bit more substantial. But yeah, I mean, hooray. It's about freaking time. Uh, We'll see how it goes. I I absolutely... um, I absolutely agree with with Toby's point. If you uh, if you wanted to make that, Toby, you mentioned a little. Sure. Well, I I think kind of like what you said when you were talking about it. You know, it's one of those, yay, it's happening. Feels like it's a day late and a dollar short. Um, and I think the real measure of progress with a festival of this, uh, I don't want to say stature, but of this stature, um, the real measure of progress will be t- to see how the public and the press receive her. Um, and I do personally, I anticipate there being hyper criticism, um, and passive remarks that wouldn't be shared were it, um, a man. Not bad for a girl. Not bad for a girl. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So we'll kind of, it's awesome, but I, I, I am already like predisposed to be disappointed by what people are going to say. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) I'm sorry that I'm conditioned that way, but I set up for disappointment. Not based on I think I think that psychologically started when you left Opera Box Score as a main host. So no one to blame set up for disappointment. It's all been downhill <laughs> since then. Toby Wright, he has no faith in the human people. <laughs> all right, let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Something good or something bad for the week that uh, is related to opera or music theater possibly not even at all 
Weston Williams, you get to go first. Oh, you're actually going to let me do it. Wow, exciting. Well, I've been listening to the recently released uh, 2019 production of Akhenaten, um, which has just been, which, you know, we, we had Anthony Roth Casanzo on. We had, um, uh, uh, oh, God, I'm blanking. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Jan- Zachary James. Franklin. Aretha Franklin, we had her on. No, Zachary James, <laughs> we had him on the show, too. Yes, uh, Truly an extraordinary performance. And I, I was I was almost wondering if it would still hold up on my little laptop screen compared to the live and HD screens. And it does. It's just a, a, a an amazing performance. If you missed it live in HD, go find it. It's out on, on digital. The audio recording is out and the video is as well. And it's it's truly a, an amazing production. Ashley Hardgrave. I'm going to give you advice on how to make your life better in three words. Watch Schmigadoon immediately. <laughs> Schmigadoon is a new series. It's on Apple TV. Find a login, borrow one from your buddies. If don't illegally download because that's bad, but find some other way to watch it. It is uh, the premise is Cecily Strong and Keegan Michael Michael Key get lost in what is basically an homage to 1940s movie musicals, uh, and there are immediate uh, musical theater references from the first half of the 20th century. So you don't have to know carousel or brigadoon or the pajama game but if you do you're gonna like it that much more and it's gonna be that much funnier to you the writing is very smart the music is very smart the choreography is smart all of the actors are brilliantly cast watch it you will not regret it tobias Wright. um i cannot retweet and hashtag like that enough ashley because schmigadoon is hilarious i do think if you haven't seen musicals and aren't a fan you would be utterly confused but still enjoy it um, so yeah, my good call is a conversation that Will Liverman had with Laura Downs. This is on a link from NPR. Um, great conversation. And obviously Will Liverman, friend of the show, I believe him to be one of the greatest singers of our generation. History will record that. Um, little blurb here from the article um, with a link to, to the interview. But next season, Will stars in the first opera by a Black composer ever performed at the New York City Metropolitan Opera. A dream come true for him. Um, and for many singers before him, never had that chance. Will's also writing his own opera, The Factotum, um, a joyous reimagining of Rossini's A Barber of Seville, uh, set in a modern day black barbershop on Chicago's South Side. Uh, Will's incredible conversation's phenomenal. Uh, really excited for him and glad that he's getting this publicity on NPR because more people need to know who he is and what kind of artistry exists. Aaron Short. Well, you know, to stick with the Apple TV theme uh, and the fact that my name is Team Ted Lasso, uh, there was a recent article that just came out uh, that was talking about how in comedy right now, there's a big shift from the cringe comedy that was kind of big with with the, you know, the office and the the weird, awkward manager to the feel-good protagonist like Ted Lasso. Uh, And uh, if if you're going to get an Apple TV subscription to to see Shmigadoon, get one to see this show as well. It just came out with their second season. I haven't started it yet, but I've heard it's amazing. Uh, and I'm curious to see if maybe this kind of feeling will maybe start dipping into other entertainment fields. Maybe opera. Who knows? We'll see. We are not sponsored by Apple TV. <laughs> non spawn But an opera sitcom on Apple TV would be pretty swell. Absolutely. Uh, my hot take, I was actually on a YouTube series over the past week reviewing Chicago. Look at you on the new I watched it. Oh my gosh, Ashley's already seen it. I will put a link to that on the show because... um, Everybody likes a good Chicago hot dog. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. 
Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen the bench of listeners, liking and sharing our social media posts. Again, email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is never as good as Simone's vault score. Our creative consultants, Oliver Camacho, audio and video editor, Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Tobias Wright and Aaron Short, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as teams from Sweden and France make you take a hard look at yourself. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more fourth-place finishes. Join us 